This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. The problems of Vatican II, and this is one I've heard recently in the current climate of the scandal, which is only a divine institution could be this bad. I mean, so a church that could have all of these problems, but still come out on the right side of doctrine, or however they put it, it has to be divine. Hello, welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by James Dolezal. And our guest today is Dr. Daryl Hart. He teaches history at Hillsdale College. He's the author of a number of books. And, and the book that we're going to discuss today is entitled Still Protesting. And the subtitle is Why the Reformation Matters. So, Dr. Hart, thanks for joining us. No, thank you. It's great to be with you. I wanted to start by framing the book and, and asking you uh, sort of what your experiences are. You, you talk at the beginning of the book about how there are there is this uh, steady stream over the years of, of Protestants who convert to Roman Catholicism. And it, it seemed like this book was an attempt to address some of the charges that they make against Protestantism or claims that they make for Rome. In, in your experience... Why do some Protestants convert to the Roman Catholic Church today? Uh, well, that's a really poignant question, given the current um, controversy surrounding sex scandal and whatnot in the church. And, and I don't bring that up to take a cheap shot, because I think it can be used as a, as a cheap shot. And the recent case of Bill Hybels um, stepping down, or at least the board of directors there and the minister stepping down at Willow Creek, I'm still not sure if, if Hybels has admitted to the charges against him. So it's not as if Roman Catholics only suffer from this particular problem. But I have been asking the question a lot the last several days on social media, why would you convert to Rome with this kind of uh, potential problem anyway? And, it, and it's been something in the church going back to 2001 or so, 2001 to 2002, when the Boston Globe uh, had a major uh, report on, on scandals in that archdiocese. But to answer your question, in conservative circles, political and intellectual, and they're not always the same, uh, and that's not the same as the, as the Republican Party, but one of my first encounters with a convert to Rome was a Hillsdale College student uh, at a summer conference for the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, at which I used to work, saying she was moving from being a Pentecostal to a Roman Catholic because to be a consistent conservative is to be a Roman Catholic. So I think Rome in the West, uh, and America's part of the West in, in some ways, um, Rome represents tradition, history, ballast against the vicissitudes, the changes that are always going on, especially in the modern world. And there's a lot of lamenting that's gone on about the modern world. You could think about Abraham Kuyper, who um, objected to the outworkings and effects of the French Revolution. You can think more recently, someone who popularized Kuyper in a way, Francis Schaeffer, who was very much alarmed by secularization in the United States. So there are always ways of, of looking at our world, especially the modern world, and seeing it out of control. And I think Rome has represented a kind of stability, but that was never really that persuasive to me, even though I had many and still have many good Roman Catholic friends, some of whom are cradle, some of whom have converted, because it seems to avoid the whole question of the Reformation, which was one of salvation. Yes, there was worship involved. Yes, church government was involved. Yes, the authority of scripture was involved. But 
the very pressing question for me personally as a Christian is, is how do I stand right before God? And having an ancient institution that has a kind of institutional stability to it doesn't really matter that much to me now. And I, and I like a lot of the kind of literature I've, I've read theories, political theories and, and, and whatnot about the West and Rome's Roman Catholicism's place in the West. Um, and I think Protestants could actually be more charitable in some ways to the, those contributions, but still it doesn't address this basic problem of human sin and what the remedy for that is. So that's maybe more than you ask, but <laughs> no, still that, there, there it is. I think that's, that's a good answer. And maybe it goes to something you say in the preface of the work, which is that we need to differentiate between anti-Catholic prejudice uh, which has existed in the United States in the past, and it's documented, uh, and you acknowledge that it has been there. And the particular approach that you're taking, which is one of theological conviction that pits you against Roman Catholicism as a system and as a church in particular, how can someone think through that to differentiate between anti-Catholic prejudice on the one side and sincerely and well-held theological objections on the other? Yeah, I mean, I I am blessed, privileged, something to have had to work through that. Now, I've just been writing a preface for an, another book on on Roman Catholics and conservatism, political conservatism in the post World War II era, trying to also explain why I'm I'm doing this. Um, but I've been thinking about these questions for 15 years. So, I mean, one of the answers to that question is how you do that is to, is to think about it for 15 years. Now, that's not what some readers or listeners will want to hear, but well, I'll, I do. I'll vouch for that because I sat through your Sunday school class in an OPC congregation on this topic more than 10 years ago. So right. I, I know you've been thinking deeply about it for a long right. time. Thank you. And I'm a little embarrassed by maybe some of the ways I was actually thinking about it then. But I also have the advantage of teaching at Hillsdale where everyone in the history department teaches in the fall semester, Western Heritage, which goes from Hammurabi to John Locke. And then uh, spring semester, the American Heritage, which goes from the Puritans to Ronald Reagan. And Western Heritage is particularly revealing for the debts that we in the West have to the ancient and medieval periods. And so that has given me a great appreciation for Roman Catholicism and the voices of Christianity in the pre-modern West and again, I think that points to why some people who want to hold on to stability in the Western world would look at Rome as the place to go for that. Though we also read in that course, Luther and Calvin, on the very pressing matters of justification by faith alone, and we look at Trent's response to that. And if so if you can isolate the cultural, social, political, economic questions that bedevil all of us, uh, in some way, and separate that from the very existential, spiritual ones of um, personal guilt for actual sin, as well as original sin, and then you turn to the pages of Scripture, and you read about the remedy for that in Jesus Christ, it still seems to me you come out on the side of Luther and Calvin, and but you can still appreciate, at times, I mean, I think 
Rome also has a bad track record politically at times, and I don't want to whitewash that either. Um, but I don't think that's a reason to say, oh, that's why I want to be a Protestant, because I don't want to have anything to do with fascism or authoritarianism or throwing an altar or European states or something. No, that's still not going to save you from your sin. So, and again, I guess part of the way in my own life I've come to think about this is having done you know my my dissertation on J. Gresson Machen and the spirituality of the church and the kind of separation that he argued for between spiritual matters that the church is is ministering and the political or temporal matters that the state oversees that kind of separation in church and state that or two two kingdom theology that gets flack in some Protestant circles I know um, but that's also another way of kind of trying to separate this that in the temporal order we might you know, make all sorts of provisions for uh, working through political, social order. But when it comes to the very, again, eternal questions of, you know, standing before God on that judgment day, then it seems to me another set of considerations come to the fore. Near the end of your volume, you you deal with the question of Vatican II and you ask, you, you sort of get at the question of, did the Roman Catholic Church at Vatican II abandon being a church of Jesus Christ, and if if so, did it do so in a way that uniquely supersedes even the the errors of Trent? <laughs> maybe that's well, too much. Maybe that's too much to. No, I to think do that in that's an implication answer. in some ways of the way I framed it, and I would argue that, and I think I try to do it in some ways in, in that chapter, if not the book, at other points. That Vatican II, the Second Vatican Council, which met between 1962 and 1965. Boy, you think general assemblies are long. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> right. But I think modernism came the way that Protestants consider modernism, which is adapting Christian truths to the modern world and kind of cutting and pasting as you need to go. I think Vatican II did that. I think it also opened the door for more of that kind of um, cutting and pasting at seminaries, colleges, universities, and even in parishes. Um, and I think it's hard to deny that. I, conservatives, someone like Ross Douthat, who is not a traditionalist, but he's a conservative, um, meaning that conservative Roman Catholics think John Paul II kind of put the brakes on Vatican II and kind of restored a measure of order in the church and now people wonder whether he actually did it with Pope Francis, who seems to be much more hard to categorize, but you could probably put him much more in the Vatican II camp. But anyway, so right. if, if Rome became modernist at Vatican II, then it rises to the level, the way in my own tradition, my own communion, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church regards the Presbyterian Church USA, the mainline Presbyterian Church. And we believed in 1936, not that I'm that old, but, you know, part of the, the major narrative is that the Presbyterian Church USA was no longer a true church. And so we were we were the spiritual successors to the Presbyterian Church, and we were going to carry on the true faith. You know, you could say that that's what Luther and Calvin were up to in the 16th century as well, even though Rome was holding on to certain truths of Christianity. And I would still say that you can be a Christian in the Roman Catholic Church. You will hear some of the gospel in scripture and in prayers and in songs. You will hear some of uh, the truths of uh, the gospel there, but you're not going to be encouraged in that. The plausibility structures for keeping that going are not there. So I don't want to say that, you know, anyone, that everyone who's in the Roman Catholic Church is not a Christian. That would be silly. Or even that all of 
Roman Catholic ministry is tainted. But again, I think in, in the same way that conservative Protestants, confessional Protestants have reservations about mainline churches or something, I think those reservations are still there. So it's to go back to your question, I think it is possible to entertain that that conclusion. So coming full circle to the student who said to be consistently conservative, I need to go and join Roman Catholicism. What you're arguing with the point about Vatican II is simply that whatever that Catholicism is now officially uh, is not the older conservative, even Tridentine version uh, that so many converts to Rome might imagine they're going to when they cross the Tiber. Yes, I think that's right. There are many ways around that. You mean ways that they give to get around? Yeah, that really do frustrate me. And that if frustration comes through in the book, these are sources of it. So one is the notion of the development of doctrine, which Cardinal John Henry Newman, I guess, is partly responsible for in the 19th century, who was, by the way, an opponent of papal infallibility at roughly the same time. So it's not exactly a uh, simple story there that... Newman was doing the bidding of the Vatican, but um, this is a way of trying to say that truths that emerged, say, at Second Vatican Council were there already earlier, but now the church is kind of building on earlier notions and, and recognizing those truths in a fuller way now. You know, following conventions of logic, meaning of words, all sorts of points that we use in, for intellectual engagement, it's really hard to make that work when it comes to something like, say, religious liberty. And I have a colleague here in the history department who's a Lutheran historian in training, and he's writing a book now on religious liberty in the Roman Catholic tradition. And the changes are just striking, but change is a dirty word. And another way, though, around that The problems of Vatican II, and this is one I've heard recently a lot in the current climate of the scandal, which is only a divine institution could be this bad. I mean, so a church that could have all of these problems, but still come out on the right side of doctrine, or however they put it, it has to be divine, which is like saying about the Bible, the Bible becomes more divine the more errors we see in it. These are great frustrations, but there are these these arguments out there that I think console people who, when they become aware of, say, changes at Vatican II, or when they become aware of a real problem the bishops have had in trying to police church life, there are other ways, ways around that. Um, I just wish the people who had converted to Roman Catholicism had found those similar kinds of arguments to stay within the Protestant fold, because... Oftentimes, the reason why people leave Protestantism is because it's so bad, it's so diverse, it's so it lacks so much unity, it's so the worship is so bad, and all these things. Well, now you're going to say Roman Catholicism is bad, but it proves it's divine. Well, why couldn't you say right. Protestantism sure. is so bad and it proves it's divine? Yeah, um, that's a great that's a great response. You're getting right into the territory of a question I had on to the disaffected Protestant who may have real problems with their particular church or tradition, maybe the Pentecostal student that you spoke to, what did they miss when they go over to Catholicism? What alternative form of Christianity are they missing? Where would you direct them? If you had a student who at Hillsdale came and said to you, Professor Hart, this is what I'm thinking about, where would you encourage that person to to seek the alternative within Protestantism? I try not to wear my hat as an elder on campus, but sometimes students do, will seek you out. So one student came to me and and asked, and this is how successful I was. I think she has converted to Rome. 
but she asked what she should be looking for in a church. And I become, I've actually become, I think, a better Christian, better Protestant for having written this book and, and the current one I'm working on, because I think I understand better the nature of not just Protestantism, but what Protestantism is saying about Christianity more generally. And so therefore, that old notion may be tired in some ways to kids who've grown up in Protestant circles. And uh, But sola scriptura, the importance of scripture. I mean, if you have a di- direct revelation from God, and granted, it's not like God sat down and wrote a book. I mean, he used a lot of authors in a lot of different circumstances. As the Westminster Confession says, chapter one, as Hebrews says, you know, it doesn't come right off God's word processor to us. Okay, I got that. But still, if you've got something that you think is revelation from God, seems to me you want to find a church that teaches that, that ministers that, that explains that as much as possible. And I do, I do sense a real lack among Roman Catholic apologists, among people writing on blogs, a real lack of understanding or even awareness. There's a real ignorance of, of Scripture. And it's a cliche. It's something that Protestants used to say that, oh, Roman Catholics don't know their Bibles. They don't read their Bibles. But there's a certain sense in which that's true. The Roman Catholic intellectual tradition usually goes from Aristotle to Augustine to Aquinas. And, you know, kind of missing there in the middle is Jesus, Paul, and Peter. Not to mention then the whole Old Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures. And, you know, it's really hard to make sense of the New Testament without trying to make some sense of the Old Testament. And, you know, so there's kind of a Greco-Roman side to Roman Catholic intellectual life that misses out the Judeo side of the uh, Christian tradition. So I think the Bible is is really um, our greatest ally, not to mention uh, revelation from God, but trying to argue for that is still a challenge. Dr. Hart, thanks for your time today. And thanks, especially for your work in writing this book. Again, for our listeners, this is still protesting why the Reformation matters and the author is D.G. Hart. So thanks. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for having me. Great to talk to you. James, one of the things that I think comes through in Derhart's writings, in this book to some extent, but certainly, certainly in the other things he's written, is that he's not saying that every expression of Protestantism is a good one. He's definitely not saying, just don't convert to Roman Catholicism, it's fine where you are. In fact, you know, he can be very pointed in his criticism. I mean, here he's turning his attention against the Roman Catholic Church, but probably more of his writings are offer pointed criticisms of evangelical Protestantism. Right. Yeah. So I, I think a reader wouldn't want to look at this book as some kind of anti-Catholic diatribe no. as much as I think an articulation of sincerely held convictions rooted in the scripture about what a good expression of the Protestant tradition mm-hmm. should offer and is even better than what Rome is offering. And I think what he's offering is the kind of Christianity you should be seeking right. if you are, if you've grown disaffected or are not served by your current Protestant church. Right. And so in that respect, I think he's, yes, he's speaking to people who've already made the move and asking them and questioning them as to why they made it. But I think it's also a useful book reminding Protestants why it's worth remaining Protestant and that the benefits of a confessing Protestant tradition are arguably better than whatever kind of stability 
Rome holds out. But again, you're right. It's not that every single Protestant church is in every instance better than anything Rome has to offer. I mean, you and I have talked in the past about issues like doctrine of God, right? Right. Where we look at certain Roman modern Roman Catholic theologians and think, wow, they're doing such a yeah, better they have job better than, yeah. than so many yeah. evangelicals. Yeah. And I think Daryl would recognize that as well. But especially, and he brought up two things in particular, which I think is exactly where we want to be focusing, which is doctrine of salvation yep. and, and the doctrine Bible. of scripture. Yep. No, exactly. Salvation and the Bible. And I think he would say, listen, if you're struggling, if, you, if you're disaffected, if you have questions, those might be very legitimate questions the answers aren't found in the Roman Catholic church. I mean, to me, that's the sort of burden of the book and you're right, focusing in on salvation and the scriptures. Well, thank you all for listening to this episode of theology on the go. As always, I want to remind you that we couldn't do this without the support of listeners like you. So if you're able to donate, you can do that at alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. There's a button there to donate. We also want to offer one of you the opportunity to win a copy of Daryl's book. So we'll be posting on placefortruth.org on the Theology on the Go link, a place for you to click and enter your information and possibly win Still Protesting, Why the Reformation Matters by D.G. Hart. That's published by our good friends at Reformation Heritage Books, RHB. And if you don't win a copy, we'd encourage you to pick up a copy. You may know someone who's asking these kinds of questions. You may have a family member or a friend who's struggling with some of these things. Or, or you may just want a sort of refresher course on why Protestantism matters. And Daryl Hart's book is a good starting place for that. So thanks, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.